0: understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success whatever your goals may be listening to she said she said podcast is a smart efficient investment you can make in you i'm really glad you're here and i'm excited we're on this journey together hey friend welcome to this bonus episode of she said she said podcast As I work on a new season of the podcast, I've been taking a break from recording over the past few weeks, and I'm sharing a few repackaged and re-edited past episodes, just a few, but ones that really resonated with listeners and that generated so much great feedback. As I mentioned when I posted last week's bonus episode on confidence, I was actually recovering from COVID. Truth be told, I still am. So many of you were so sweet and reached out, and I am really, really grateful for not only your kind wishes, but also your assortment of remedies. All of those things helped me so much and I'm happy to say I'm feeling much better and I think finally I'm on the mend, maybe a bit slower than I'd hoped, but nevertheless, I do have a great season coming for you next month and I am excited that we'll continue to talk not only about influence and how to build and sustain it, but we'll also be digging into a few new dimensions that I think you'll really appreciate and that hopefully you'll find incredibly valuable. A couple of those include how to increase mental energy and focus and stamina, and how to think about and potentially better manage our time. A lot more to come on all of that and so much more in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited to share it with you. Today, however, I am sharing another bonus episode. This one is an abbreviated version of an earlier conversation that I had in episode 164 with author and problem-solving expert Lisa Gable. Lisa's terrific book is entitled Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South. Her book was published last fall, and it continues to top the Amazon charts for business books. Every one of us, at one point or another, has found ourselves in that situation, whether it's a job where the problem we're hired to solve seems entirely intractable, or maybe it's with a team that just doesn't gel. For some reason, there's some aspect of it, some reason why the team isn't coming together. Or maybe it's in your business when you just can't figure out why your customers aren't clamoring for your product or your service. Figuring out what can at first seem unfigureoutable is the key to really recalibrating and finding a way to move forward. And that's what this conversation with Lisa today is all about. Now, friend, a few specific topics that generated so much great feedback when this conversation first aired and that I think you'll really appreciate. The first is the importance of speaking with facts. So much of the time, we encourage women to speak up, and that's a great thing. But particularly important is doing so when you're actually armed with facts and data that help you make the case and that can ground the conversation in something other than just opinion or emotion. Those things can be fine, and they can also provide a great compliment at times, but you're much more likely to generate real credibility and build real influence when you also have facts on your side, and Lisa talks about that. The second topic, how you learn to develop good problem-solving skills in the first place. Lisa walks us through the methodology that she outlines in her book and why and how her approach is actually rooted in manufacturing principles. It's really fascinating. Lisa and I also talk about how to translate confidence into credibility. We talk about how to pick and utilize mentors. And finally, we talk about how to really hone in on your core competencies and why that matters so much. I think you'll find great value in Lisa's perspective. And remember, you can pick up a copy of her terrific book entitled, Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Go South. You'll find a link to purchase that in the show notes for this bonus episode, episode 208. But for now, friend, here is this week's bonus episode with author and problem solver, Lisa Gable. Lisa, welcome back to She Said, She Said podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you back. For listeners who may recall, Lisa joined us in episode 33 as she was starting as the CEO of the Food Allergy Research and Education Organization. Um, This was her latest turnaround venture. You have since I saw you last written this fantastic book, also entitled Turnaround. I would love for you to really help me dig into how this idea of problem solving helps us build and sustain influence. That's our topic for this season is this idea of influence. And so I'd love to spend some time with you today talking about the power of problem solving. So why don't we start our conversation with that and then we'll dig into your resume a bit more.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And I think right now I call it in my own world of, of work, swirling and twirling. We are swirling and twirling a lot right now because there's such complexity. There's so many variables. It's so unpredictable that people are really struggling with how to focus on how to move forward. And one of the first things that I learned from Craig Barrett, who was the CEO of Intel and chairman of the board and my mentor, is speak with facts. And why is that important? When you're sitting in a room and people are arguing or they they're frustrated, being able to bring everything back to the facts, to the quantitative data, getting everybody really focused on job one, what's our core competency, evaluating each issue that you're having as it relates to very specific facts helps ground everyone and it takes the emotion out of it because it's really all about process, it's not about people.
0: Yeah, Lisa, you've, you've had this incredible resume I mean literally you've checked boxes across every sector that I can think of I'd love for you to talk about your origin story a little bit and about how you realized that you had this skill for problem solving and what was it about problem solving that really resonated with you
1: Well, I was working at the White House and presidential personnel. I'd been going to grad school at nighttime and working at the White House during the day. And my boss, Bob Tuttle, who would later be ambassador to the court of St. James, and he was head of presidential personnel under Ronald Reagan, was two hours late for a meeting. And I was in charge of escorting Barbara Barrett, who was up to be the deputy of the FAA, So we're sitting in the basement of the White House, and I'm like 23 years old, 24 years old, and I'm talking to this woman. And at that time, Barbara was in her 30s. You may know she became uh, ambassador to Finland and secretary of the Air Force later, Uh, but it launched Space Force. That's my favorite. Uh, But uh, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, what do I talk to her about? Well, we were together for two hours, two hours, and she's a very engaging person anyway. But at the end of the conversation, we talked about my master's thesis. You're going to school at nighttime. And what are you writing your thesis on? And I was writing my thesis on what's called dual-use technologies, technologies with military use and civilian use. And that would include semiconductors, supercomputers, things like that. And so she goes, gosh, sometime you've got to meet my husband. His name's Craig Barrett. He's a senior vice president at this place called Intel Corporation. And Intel at that time was a, wasn't the huge monolithic company that it is today. And so she arranged, she, one thing she did is she fed me. She knew I was making no money. Uh, I was going to grad school. I was paying for everything myself. I was on scholarship at grad school. But once a month, Barbara would take me out to dinner and she would feed me. That was was her duty. So throughout, so at the end of the Reagan administration, October before uh, the president, before the election that would elect George um, H.W. Bush, she said, uh, let me introduce you to Craig. So Craig and I sit down and, and he hired me, brought me to Intel. And what he taught me is that you can utilize manufacturing principles to solve any problem any problem. So my I was troubleshooting for Craig on things like K-12 through education because there weren't CSR programs back then. I'm old. This was a long time ago. Now it's the norm. There mm-hmm. weren't ESG programs. What we set up set the stage for those programs. He had me go troubleshoot uh, issues around export controls with the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he also had me troubleshoot a major brand problem that we were having at Intel. We'd lost the rights to a trademark. We were getting ready to invest billions of dollars in the Intel Inside program. And so they wanted to understand what were we doing wrong? And he taught me how to use statistical process control and quality improvement processes, how you focus on increasing outputs and decreasing uh, cost. And I realized in 94 that, hey, if Intel's struggling with this as they move from business to business to business to consumer... I bet the rest of Silicon Valley is going to have the same problem. So I quit my job, much to my parents' chagrin, and I I went around and I started talking to people at Oracle and all these other big companies, and I said, you're going to have this problem. And guess what? nobody was having the problem. They're like, "Okay, great. Nice to meet you." And so 9 months out, I was I really thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. Oh my god, I left my job. I'm not making any money. I was I was doing weird odd jobs to make ends meet, but I was still out there pitching to everybody. I kept saying, "You're going to have this problem that Intel had. You're going to have the same problem because your systems are not going to support consumer and you have to talk directly to the consumer." At that 9-month point, my phone started ringing off the hook. And I went from having, literally eating peanut butter and ramen noodles to hiring 20 uh, consultants to work for me on various projects with some of the biggest high tech companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Each of them were running into these issues and somebody would tap somebody's shoulder in a meeting, and go, you know, that lady was in here. <laughs> she kept telling us what she did at Intel and should we look at that? So that's when I had my epiphany that I really had something that would, would be applicable across all sectors.
0: Yeah. I, I want you to back up for a second because I mean, there's a number of things that are super interesting about that story that you just told, but one that sticks out, to me is where the confidence came from to basically quit your job and launch into something that other people weren't buying into yet. And while you're an amazing salesperson, that takes a tremendous amount of confidence to convince them, I've got something you need. You just don't know it yet.
1: Well, I'm going to back it up a little bit because it also gets into another story. I've, I've always had I love to solve problems. And I've been able to, through my life and career, identify that purple elephant in the rim is wearing the pink tutu and has sparkles on his head. <laughs> Does no one else see that? But what I had to learn is how to channel my confidence as a young woman into conversation in a way that people would listen to me. Right. And so I wouldn't be that annoying young, you know, I started working in the Reagan administration when I was 19. And so I I had very uh, high level jobs at an extremely young age. And with that comes arrogance and, and, you know, not knowing when to keep your mouth shut. So we had a situation where I had redesigned um, on paper using Intel's manufacturing processes, what I thought needed to be put in place for export control. So it's twenty five years old, had had done an entire redesign. And I went and I pitched it at the CIA and I said, here's the problem. The export control process is not going to support the advance of innovation. It's gonna, you know, we will, other countries will step in because they'll be happy to sell to Russia and China. It was during the cold war. Mm-hmm. and um, And so I sold it in and I came back to another meeting and there was a big beltway bandit at the table for the next meeting and they were getting $50 million to redesign this program using my outline in the defense intelligence agencies in the CIA. I was livid, I was so mad. And I I held it in because I never get mad in public. That is one thing my mother taught me. So I'm sitting there, sitting there. "Mm, Yep, it's a great idea. Boy, you know, (laughs) I love, love the idea. I'd actually published on the idea. It was in a magazine. It was in a defense magazine. It was my first big publication. And I remember marching into Craig's office and just telling him, and oh my God, you know, that was a contract Intel could have. We could have had that contract, Craig. And it was my idea and it's published in this magazine. And they, they stole my idea. He goes, Lisa, what do I do? I sell semiconductors. What's job one for me? Selling semiconductors. He said, if somebody else is going to pay somebody, he goes, yeah, Intel could have done this, but that's not what we do. He said, if somebody else is going to pay for it and knock the boulders out of the way for me to sell semiconductors, I can sell millions and billions of semiconductors. And so I think the issue became at that point is having a really good mentor who taught me, when do you speak? When do you hold your fire? What attributes need to be part of each set of remarks that you make? And then how do you best present your information and also stay in your lane and recognize that you do have one job. And so that that is, that is more of the issue, which is I learned how to do that. And, and I was very respectful when I went into those companies and sold. I'd done my research, I'd researched what they were doing. I actually anticipated where their market was going to go. but I politely walked out the door when you know they didn't take the sale and then I kept in touch with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to learn when to hold it back and when to put it forward. Yeah. How, how how do you not lose
0: momentum when you get no, 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 over and over and over again, even though you know your idea
1: is the idea, you know, eventually it's going to catch on. But how do you keep your confidence strong? You talk to your mentors and your friends. And what they do is they prop you back up, they dust you off, and they send you back up the hill. And um, and I think I was de- able to develop at least a, a level of respect with people that um, they could hear what I was saying. They didn't think I was crazy. They just, it wasn't right for the moment. And I think that's another thing. Everything in life is about timing and they're going to be these primary inflection points. And if you're lucky, and I've been very fortunate in that I have been able to enter in at that inflection point at the right time with the right solution to do the turnarounds that are talked about in the book. But let me tell you, there have been many times where I where I tried and sold and it fell flat on its face and people didn't like it. Uh, the irony is I, I have watched throughout my career and I've actually taught myself to feel good about it where people have taken that idea that I created that was rejected and used it Elsewhere, and ultimately, in one case, it ended up solving all their problems. And yet, when I had put it forward, it took a year. It took a year after my departure from that conversation. For the idea to have its moment and people called me and they said, boy, your idea was really a great idea. Now we're now we're all doing it. Uh, But you've got to feel satisfaction in that you have to feel positive about it. You have to have pride and you have to recognize you're not always going to be the one who gets to be the center of the stage on your good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really valuable lesson. It's a really valuable lesson. I would love for you to jump into the book a bit. It's terrific. I had a chance Thank to you. read an advance copy, so I recommend that folks listening um, go out and get Lisa's book. It's entitled "Turnaround." It's available as of this week. Um, so, and it's it is it has already hit uh, what number three on the Amazon bestseller list globally, which is an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations, Thank Lisa! Thank you. You do a couple of interesting things in this book. You're combining a focus on manufacturing with diplomacy, which is such an interesting combination of things. Let's dive into the book a bit. There's a four-step process that you talk about. Maybe walk us through that.
1: Sure. Step number one is visualize the future. If you have a magic wand and you could wave it and the future would be where you want it to be, that's what you keep in your mind. It's where you revisit and come back to. But the reality is it's not where you are today. And so step number two is that you have to audit the past. You actually have to take a look and figure out why did we start this organization? Dust off the old bylaws, dust off the old reasons, go back to original marketing materials. What was the core essence of the business or the organization or the activity that caused you to get it started? And how have you gone off course? Is it still viable? And audit everything that you're doing and measure it against that perfect future because the question is whether you've created distractions, which can be very costly and have taken you down different rat holes and you may love them dearly, but they're not the core competency. Once you do that audit process and you're ranking and rating everything, You have to make hard decisions, and that's how you create your path from the present to the future, to that beautiful future that you've envisioned. And through ranking and rating, you have to get rid of things. And that's really hard. It's really, really hard. In some cases, as I've said, you put your heart, soul, blood, sweat, and tears into something. And understanding when you have to hit the pause button on it and let it go is one of the hardest emotional decisions that anybody can make in, in any organization. But you have to do that because you're, you're stuck. You're not, you're not financially sustainable. The economics of your business do not make sense. Mm-hmm. And once you've done that process, you've developed what I call a decision tree. And it allows you to do, if we do these things, is it a yes answer? And we do this, is it a no answer? We do that. That brings everybody onto the same page and it grounds everybody in how you're developing that path forward. And the fourth step is you've done all the work. And now you're ready to go with speed, confidence, agility, and heart. Stop questioning yourself. You did all the work. You have the answers, and you've got to move forward. Sometimes we hear the term you gotta fly the plane while you're building it. Yep, you do. But the good news is the work, the steps I gave you have allowed you to uh, quality control and check and balance each of your decisions to make to make your forward movement possible. And where does the heart come from? What I realized through my life, and it's always the hardest thing for me, is every decision you make in a turnaround impacts a person. It impacts a human being, your customer, your community, uh, your employee. If the economics of the business don't work, then someone will lose their job. Mm -hmm. And, And to recognize that it's about the structure of the business, Yes, that individual may have been part of the bad decision-making, but the reality is, as you know, business is complicated. Programs, government programs are complicated. There are a lot of variables. And so have heart for that person. See how that you communicate with them. Recognize that if you help them get another job, they, You may put them in a place where they can partner with you in the future. You actually could end up working for that person in the future. And I'm always stunned when, when big companies or organizations have a restructuring and employees leave, people stop talking to them. I'm like they're not dead. <laughs> they're out there. Help them. Because if you help them now and they're good people who work really, really hard, then they can be part of your future uh, because the world is is merging in so many different ways at the moment uh, through the advancement of technology and innovation. That I don't believe you should just let you know let relationships go. I believe you should continue to nurture them and uh, and recognize that you're making a hard decision. You have to make it, but you can do it in a nice way.
0: Maybe give us some advice. You know, anytime you have to. Let someone go, whatever the circumstances may be. It can be one of the toughest decisions that you have to make. So maybe give listeners a bit of advice on how to handle that um, in the kindest and most diplomatic way possible.
1: Well, in one way, you want to fa- you want to have the conversation in an. Almost impersonal way. And here's what I mean you acknowledge all the good things that the person's done. But what you do is you frame the this is where we're at within the context of the functionality and the economics of the entity that you are running. And that depersonalizes it. That helps the person to understand and actually feel better that they're not a bad person, they haven't done a bad job, but they no longer fit. Now, let's say that the person is not the right person for the job. Perhaps they didn't have the skill sets and someone promoted them too quickly. At that point, if you're in a good rapport, you can mention that it was unfortunate, but you recognize that maybe they hadn't had this type of training in the past but they're really, really good at certain things. It's why you hired them, it's why they're in the organization. So be willing to have a conversation with them as a senior level person about how to leverage their strengths for the next opportunity. And if you feel comfortable doing so, I always write a letter of recommendation for the person. And then we end the conversation by talking about, what do you want me to highlight? Like, what would be the perfect, what would be your perfect world scenario? What would you really like to do? And then we talk about, well, where did you do that at this place? and what are the results that you had. And I I write very personalized letters. That means a lot because it allows the person to walk out with their head held high and it allows the restructuring to take the emotional burden or the questioning that might go on um, off the shoulders of that person who is now a job seeker. And um, and I also will make phone calls for people. I, I In one restructure I did, I made a lot of phone calls, hooked people up, but it's interesting. Some employees want that type of assistance and other people are, are done with it and they're ready to depart and that's fine. You shake their hand and off they go.
0: Most of all, showing that uh, extreme sensitivity um, in those circumstances and really being differential to the employee who is ha- who is faced with a transition. Let's talk a bit about Lisa, also within uh, within the bucket of of people and your people strategy. You come into these organizations or situations where something is broken. There's a big problem, you come in to fix it. Um maybe some of the people who have been in charge have already left the circumstances, but inevitably, you'll still have team members who are there on the ground who were part of executing that problematic strategy. Talk about the challenge of getting an existing team on board when you are trying to pivot in a really big way. This can be super tough to get buy-in for a new idea and take everybody on that journey with you. Give us some advice on how the best ways are to do that.
1: Yeah, and they may not stay on that journey with you. I mean, that's Mm. the harsh reality of life is that you go in, you clearly Uh, define what you are doing in the turnaround. The best advice I was given is you walk in the door with a script and you tell them the truth. You're transparent. If you know already that you're going to have to do a restructuring and layoffs will be required. You tell people that you, you've been hired to do that. Secondarily, you then walk them through what the steps are that you'll be taking to reach the decisions that you're making and how you plan to interact with them. And I and I work on having a highly, I, I do shuttle diplomacy. I bring each person in if I'm capable of it or if my, my middle managers are capable of, of doing so, it depends on the number of people, you bring them in, you talk to them individually, you ask them about what they think went wrong. And that's where you start to identify the people who may see the problem and actually be within the same framework you are about how to solve that problem and the people who just don't get it, who, who literally just do not understand. Um, I have a phrase that I use in the book and I created it uh, when I was in um, the World's Fair. I love this phrase, which is "you have the bad apples and the bad bananas. So the bad apples are people that they're in the bowl, they're in your group and everybody they touch, it's so apparent, right? You can see that they're corrupting the, uh, the ability of the group to function in a good way moving towards the future. And that's an easier task to solve, because at that point, you put them for performance improvement. If it's an attitude issue, you talk to them about it. Uh, But if you realize that the way in which they operate is actually causing everybody to trip, you know, you can't pass the baton to the next person. If they move the box in front of your way, and you have to trip over the box. But then there's this other place to call the bad bananas. And what I learned is that you know, uh, an apple turns another apple bad if it's next to it, but a banana can be anywhere in your house. And if a banana goes bad, the fruit bowl will become corrupted. And those are the harder ones to find because you get the groups together, you're moving forward, you got group A, group B, group C, And then it's like, what's going on? I don't understand. And there are people, they're insurrectionists. There's guerrilla warfare. It could be that type of individual, or it could be the type of person that's passive aggressive. And so as a result, it's discombobulating to everyone else, a little harder to identify. You have to be you know, have to be very cognizant. And then there are people who just do the whisper campaigns. And we all hear about the leaks. Um, And, you know, those bad bananas, you got to get rid of those bad bananas. They just have to go. (laughs) How do you how do you find them though? I mean, what- Well, you start talking to people. You have HR talk to people. You talk to people. You really start studying what's going on in the dynamic and you narrow it down and you narrow it down. I use executive coaches sometimes who come in and they can be a second eyes and ears because you have the mentoring your people and all of a sudden they're noticing that uh, everybody is leaving in a really great mood and then they're all returning in a really bad mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to follow it back to the source. And yeah. um, and that's where I think one thing I do, which a lot of people don't, I talk about the underlying cause of the problem. And I learned that it's a medical term. You talk about the underlying cause of the disease. It's not always apparent. You have got to pull pieces apart, pull the pieces apart. At Intel, we had, first time I discovered it is Craig used to make me call the 800 number. I and mean, he really used to make me search down the source, the source of the problem. So we were having problems with the the Germans. They were all angry at us. And I couldn't figure out why. I was telling them about the changes we were making. We were sending them the information. We would then do phone calls because Zoom didn't exist back then. And they're still mad. And I'm like, what is wrong? So I fly over to Germany and we're talking and they go, well, we never got X, Y, and Z. It's like, how did you not get it? I sent it to you six months ago. And then I checked and I said, I sent it to you again. So I go down in the mail room in Frankfurt, Germany, and I start opening all the doors and I start opening the boxes with the mail guy. Well, guess what? Everything we had been sending them was sitting in the mail room. And the problem was the mail room. The problem wasn't the brand strategy. The problem wasn't the materials that we had developed. The problem wasn't that they weren't on board and they wanted to help. The problem was they never saw the information that they needed and therefore they were confused. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you really have to pull it apart and look at each individual piece to figure out what's missing. So fascinating. Lisa, how do you apply this? So you've worked um, in really large organizations. You've worked on campaigns. You mentioned the World Fair, and I'd love for you to talk about that as well. You just you have such a fascinating and just gold plated resume. But these are tactics and techniques that have worked for organizations that are really big and organizations that are really small. And I think presumably also work as it relates to our own personal development in thinking about things that maybe we're not doing. Maybe talk about um, right sizing this strategy for dealing with personal improvement as well as organizational problem solving.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. A friend of mine, he has a phrase that he uses, and I just love it. He goes, Lisa, you eat an elephant the same way you eat a cupcake, one bite at a time. And so when I'm counseling my daughter, for example, and she's getting overwhelmed by work and grad school, Um, I'll, we'll just, we'll just take it down to three bites. Go Helen and every day, she's going to kill me if she sees this every day, you have to do one thing, just one thing. We're going to do three bites this week. These are your three bites. They're your priorities. This is why you've got to get these three things done. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. You can't clean your apartment this week because you've got so much going on, but you still need to do these three things then just focus on those three things. And to me, it's almost a mental process of moving stuff off the table. I literally have a very very visual in how I problem solve. So I have this mental mechanism where I see all the stuff piled on the table. It's like, okay, we got that one off the table. We got that one off the table. We got that present wrapped. We took it to the post office we didn't just wrap it and leave it on the table that's what my husband does (laughs) you know you have in life in life it doesn't matter I, i worked with a friend on her um state senate campaign and i walked in the door uh 90 days before the campaign and i just said stop doing everything you're doing what's the most important thing get out the vote fundraising And those, those were the most important things. So stop doing all the big events because they suck up time and they don't reach that many people, you know, take, don't, if it's not going to raise you the money, then don't do it. It doesn't matter that you did X, Y, and Z, and you showed up for these four coffees because the reality is we're at crunch time right now. And so it's truly about get out the vote. And there's certain mechanisms that have proven within politics to get out votes mm-hmm. and uh, and, you know, in the fundraising, you've got to raise the money. That's got to be the focus. Pick up the phone and call 10 donors today. It's one bite at a time. And they all hate it. They hate it massively. As we know, political politicians hate doing those phone calls. But that's that's what you have to do in life, whether it's my daughter and her, you know, three bites for the week. Uh, or if it's uh, because you're running the campaign, um, I, I still bring it down to what's job one, what's job two, what's job three, what's going to kill me if I don't do these three things.
0: Yeah, and really hyper focusing mm-hmm. on those three things. Yeah, it's really great advice. I know your dad was an extraordinary human being. And he was one of your role models, you talk about him in the book, maybe talk a little bit about what you learned from him
1: my father passed away two years ago and that that was what made me start thinking about the book and i was going to do the book on leadership and character um and then my my publisher said you know turnarounds it's going to be very practical information that people will desperately need but when i when my father passed away i found a letter from him and in that letter what he talked about is to crisis your you know challenge your crisis challenge your crisis And his ultimate point was that some of his biggest stumbling blocks had been his biggest stepping stones. And so his never give up attitude was something that I appreciated and his, uh, his big heart. My dad, he, he was a person who was born in a, a humble environment. Uh, his mother uh, passed away when he was seven, and his siblings were 20 years older than he was. And his dad sent him off to Canada for boarding school, not because he was a wealthy person and boarding school was part of their dynamic, but because he literally didn't have the capacity to take care of seven kids. And he was an engineer, so he was working full time. And my dad went off to boarding school at the age of seven. And I think what my dad learned is that he didn't go after the new shiny pennies. What he looked for is the people who had certain characteristics and they may not be the perfect people. There actually might be something that's seriously flawed with one way in which they work. But they are so capable in this particular area that if you help grow that capability and you help them reduce the impact of the negative element in their life, then that can be your strongest ally, uh, worker, uh, executive. And so I've tried to follow his process. We all get in, we, we admire, again, you know, we live in Washington, the person who comes in and they're super charismatic. And of course, everybody loves them because they're good looking and they're suave and they're sophisticated. But the reality is it's, you know, the tortoise and the hare. Sometimes it's the person that's not as sexy, plodding along, that has that interesting attribute. And when you're working your way through any problem in life, you want the people who can fix the problem at that point in time. Those are the people that you wanna grow. And, um, and so I just have admired his, his heart, his compassion. Uh, he also helped people recognize when they weren't gonna get promoted and help them become okay with that. Not everybody's going to be the CEO. And so you have to find other outlets for ways in which you gain your self-esteem if it's not specifically in your job at that point in time. And so that was another piece that he would bring into every conversation.
0: Yeah, that's really, that's really beautiful. You know, we are focusing, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, about this concept of influence and the types of drivers or levers that help make a person or enable a person to build and sustain influence. I'd love for you to talk about what influence means to you and sort of how you see this this problem-solving piece and influence fit together.
1: Yeah, well, what I tell people is that um, in every step of life, you want to leave a deliverable because the deliverables that you leave at each step demonstrate your impact on the world around you. doesn't matter what that deliverable it is. It may be that you mentored a young person um, who came from a boys and girls club in a hard background, and you wrote them letters of recommendation to get them into college, and then you helped them with their internships, and then you later wrote wrote the letters of recommendation for their first fellowship or to get them into graduate school. You 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 are leaving a deliverable at every step of the way. And your impact on the world with this human being is that you've taken someone from an underserved population community and you've helped them be successful, but that's what it takes in life. And so your influence is not just doing something and being one and done, it's not one and done. You have to you have to make a long term commitment. If you see big problems in the world, we're talking a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, and what I talk about is access to care. And people get all excited and they start wearing their T-shirts and they show up at marches, but what they forget is that they're the policy changes we need to make at the at the at the local level. Um, they're not sexy. They're not exciting. It may be extended hours in a medical facility so that somebody can get there after work. It might be a a way that pu can help people. Alzheimer's did an amazing job on this where they uh, were focused on black women and they did a deal with Uber where Uber would pick them up. their home so that the family knew that person was getting to where they needed to go because maybe some family members uh, didn't have the capacity to uh, leave their job to always take mom or dad into the doctor's office and so It's not exciting, it's not exciting, but they're real barriers that exist. And so your influence is, how do you solve very specific problems that are creating that higher level frustration in society? And that's, for me, the number one thing that I can do as part of what's, what's unique about Lisa Gable. Yeah, I love that.
0: Lisa, what about advice that you would give your younger self if you could go back and talk to 19-year-old Lisa at the White House or 22- or 23-year-old Lisa at Intel? What advice would you give her?
1: I talk about this, that people, when they're they're overwhelmed, stop the self-flagellation. Stop it. Stop the self-recrimination. We all make mistakes. We all do things wrong. We don't have to be perfect all of the time. And instead focus on clearing your mind of the clutter and just making a decision about what you need to do next. And that was always difficult for me. I was an overperformer, and oh my God, if I made one mistake, if I got one bad grade, it didn't matter. I would totally collapse and my parents (laughs) would just reinforce the fact, stop the self-flagellation. You've done these other 10 things really, really, really well and okay, fine. We can't be perfect in all categories. We can't be the winner in all categories. We don't know everything, nor should we be expected to. Instead, be transparent. Say, that I don't understand. That does not make any sense to me. And then have other people in the room explain it to you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and really, it sounds like also turning to your mentors and your support system yep. to help remind you of that. H- how about advice on picking mentors? You've had some amazing ones. You mentioned um, Barbara Barrett and her husband, Craig, who was the CEO of Intel. Um, and you've had many, many others. Maybe talk about advice for finding those mentors and really leveraging that that into a real relationship.
1: So there are two types of mentors. They're the people that you find at the beginning of your career, or at a certain stage of your career, really probably into your thirties, that you admire and that they have done things that are similar to what you'd like to do. And so you you develop a relationship with that person. You don't have to talk to them all the time. In fact, they're not expecting you to, uh, but they don't mind if you re-enter their life. And I have people I've been mentoring for twenty years that uh, literally. I may not hear from them from two years, and then they show back up, and we have a conversation, and we put them on the next path. Uh, and then they're the moment in time mentors. I don't know everything. I didn't know anything about writing a book. I didn't know anything about you know publishing and marketing a book. So I all of a sudden found my mentors to be the twenty eight year old and the twenty six year old that are doing this book launch campaign for me. They know a lot more than I do, and so they're my mentors in this process. And so there there are two ways. You may find it in the workplace for that moment in time.
0: Lisa, um, one of the things that you do incredibly well is the idea of packaging your different experiences, both your wins, your successes, as well as your mistakes and your losses into a narrative that then helps you move and transition to the next opportunity. Talk about advice for our listeners for how you do that.
1: What you have to think about is your core competency. I talk a lot about the core competency of the organization. In the case of FAIR, it's research. But you as an individual have a core competency. You are really, really good at certain things. And there are other things you're not so good at. And so if you focus on that narrative, for me, it was taking manufacturing techniques and applying them to solving problems. Uh, That was the that was the theme that went through my crazy resume. And when people looked at my resume, then they understood it. They're like, oh, that makes sense. You've always worked with manufacturers. You've always been a problem solver. So think about what is the essence of you. And what are you really good at? And then you focus on improving what you're really good at. Make it what makes you special. Make it what makes you stand out in the crowd. Talk about it as the primary point of what you've done and accomplished in your academic career, in your business career, in your volunteer experience. Tell the story of you. And the second thing is you remember, you don't have to be good at everything. No one expects you to. And I will say the mistakes that I've made in life is when I thought I had to check a box, I always thought that it would be a criteria to be seen as successful if I only did that one job and I wasn't good at that one job. so it was it was a wake-up call that it wasn't the right fit for me I wasn't happy it wasn't where I was the best I didn't want to spend three years doing it so focus on what you're really good at because it's your life and we get so hung up and checking the boxes and having the right titles that we sometimes forget that you can actually say no And if you say no for the reasons based on the fact that you know that you actually will be happier doing the things that you're good at doing and seeing a level of success through the results that you are bringing, then go down that path.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. Really great advice. So the book is called Turnaround. I will include a link where listeners can buy the book. Lisa Gable, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, and congratulations on your amazing success with this podcast.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it. appreciate your friendship as well. Friend, thanks so much for joining me for this bonus episode of She Said, She Said podcast. You will find a full transcript and some great takeaways from the episode in the show notes. You'll find those on my website at she said, she said podcast.com. I hope you found this week's episode a good investment in you, and I'd love to know what you thought of this or, frankly, any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. So please be sure to reach out. You can contact me via the website at She Said, She Said Podcast.com. There, you'll find a handy link right in the show notes for this episode, episode 208. You can also reach me on social media. You'll find me across the platforms at Laura Cox Kaplan on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Friend, I'll talk to you again real soon. Until then, you take care. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.